0: This is Dr. David B. Schreiner in his teaching on Pondering the Spade. This is session number three, Tell Dan Steele and the Taylor Prism, Narrow Convergences. All right, we're in lecture three now, and we're going to transition away from broad convergences, which is what we talked about when we talked about Mari and the Gilgamesh epic. Um, but uh, now I want to talk about some spe- some narrow convergences, and I want to begin to show you um, I want to begin to show you some narrow convergences um, uh, through uh, through Tel Dan, the Tel Dan Stele, and uh, um, Sennacherib's annals and his royal records, and we'll get into that in a second. But these are going to be a little bit different because these are going to bring us up to specific points, specific passages, specific things uh, uh, within the Old Testament. So hopefully, if you're still a little fuzzy on, well, what is exactly a broad convergence, hopefully by discussing narrow convergences, and these two in particular, we'll begin to, uh, 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 as a foil almost, you'll begin to kind of clarify what actually is a narrow convergence, versus a broad convergence, okay? So again, we're going to talk about the Tel Dan Stila and the Taylor Prism. And it's actually also going to jump us into some discussions about uh, uh, what's the nature of, of, of uh, ancient history writing, ancient historiography, which is, seems like a simple question. No, it's history writing. Well, it's not really that simple. It's very complicated and nuanced, and we have to under- understand some certain things. Um, the Tel Dan Stila is a stila is a fancy term for a monument, uh, and the Tel Dan Stila was found at Tel Dan uh, during the 1993 and 1994 dig, se- uh, dig seasons. And it is an uh, incomplete monument. We only have three fragments of varying sizes. And overall, it's generally not that big. But um, the discussion around the fragments uh, because of what was said uh, is robust, and it really did... Uh, Probably second to maybe the discussion on Kiribit Kayafa, which, which is in more recent memory. This discussion on the Tel Dan Stila has just been amazing. And, and in many ways, it still continues today, um, but it has toned down an awful lot. But uh, um, yeah, anyway, we'll get into that. It is, it, is, it is an inscription written in, it's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Old Aramaic. And it's an inscription found on a very nice basalt stone monument. Uh, the fragments obviously dictate or obviously show us that the stone monument has been broken and each one of these fragments was actually found in what we call secondary usage, meaning that it was used as something else. Uh, two of them will be found as paving stones. Another one will have been found as, as a stone literally sticking out of a bulk wall. So this, this, the monument was broken into a billion pieces um, and then each one of the pieces were used for other things. Which is interesting because it shows us that the um, monument was desecrated and somebody came along after the fact and wanted to kind of leave their imprint and they saw a, they saw a, uh, a stone structure uh, glorifying some Aramaic king and they thought, eh, we don't need that here and we just break it into a billion pieces and use all the pieces for something else. But anyway, um, at the, this is what I mean when it was destroyed and the fragments were reused. Uh, the, 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 the issue with the Tel Dan Stila is that on the Tel Dan Stila, this is where the name David was first found outside of the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting about this claim is that after the Tel Dan Stila was published, um, there was an article published that argued that David, and actually I think it's the House of David, which is the same phrase on the Tel, on the tel Dan Stele. Was actually reconstructed and appeared in the Moabite Stone. The Moabite Stone has been around since the 19th century, but nobody had nobody had known uh, uh, until recently that the House of David was on that. So the Tel Dan Stele was not the earliest, but it is the first time that the name David was mentioned outside of the texts of the Bible. And this is very very important, and this is really what's fueling debate because this kind of find happened at a very strategic moment in the history of scholarship. And let's be a little bit more precise here. Um, this is interesting on this, on this, on this uh, graphic here. Um, this is the phrase in question, bait, which is house. Um, bait right there. Bait, yod, tav, da, Dalit vav, Dalit House of David. So that phrase right there is actually a construct chain. And um, But that's what we are looking at. That is the first time David was mentioned outside of the Bible. So, naturally, whenever you have somebody that is as, as widely influential upon the content of the Old Testament, somebody that's as important, say Moses, Joshua, David, you know, anybody like that, when you start seeing their names mentioned outside Scripture, you are going to have every Tom, Dick, and Harry register an opinion on it. I mean, if Facebook existed back then social media existed back then i think the internet would have exploded it got it was pretty intense and that was before the era of social media but anyway so the responses to this find are all over the place and and, and i'm going to kind of unpack that a little bit here but this was a bomb that dropped and it dropped because very uh, just a couple years before this find happened you had some widely influential historians essentially make the statement that David was a mythical figure, that David didn't really exist likely. We have no evidence of him outside the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is just presenting this ideal character, this David guy who probably didn't even exist as some sort of standard. Well, this find ev- said, nah, you're wrong, and really challenged some of those people. So these responses, basically all the responses that happened in, uh, that happened in response to Tell Dan, They were very, very passionate. All right? And we can actually, interestingly enough, despite the the, the diversity of all the responses, we can actually begin to kind of group um, the responses into a few categories. And this is where I'm going to have the the discussion go on here. One category was, well, is this inscription a forgery or not? Now, you guys may hear that and say, what kind of question is that? Of course it's not a forgery. Look, I, I have I have said in a different lecture that archaeology today is very, very, very methodologically conscious. It's methodologically obsessed, which means when you find something, you better tag it, document it threefold in case something happens to the first two documentations and, and, and records. So th- we are obsessed with where was it? What was the context of the find? What is it? Who found it? And so... It, this is a very, and, and, and I, actually in recent memory, I mean, this just happened within the past few months. Museum of the Bible people, the Green Foundation, they have just been told, all your dead sea scrolls, they're actually forgeries. All right? So this is a very serious, millions and millions and sometimes billions of dollars are being made off of forgeries. All right? So this is a actually a very legitimate question. Uh, and so this was a question that came up when this fine, was it, was it a forgery? And you actually had people that developed arguments. Um, one, one, person in, one person in particular actually argued that the, the inscription was chiseled on the stone by the excavators after the fact. And it's just kind of a ludicrous accusation, but it's out there. And so, um, thankfully, the scholarly consensus has kind of smacked these people, these conspiracy theorists, uh, back into their place and the consensus is, no, this is not a forgery. This is an authentic inscription, all right? The difficulty is, what does it say and what does it mean? So, this forgery question, while legitimate, has been put to rest. Another question that's interesting that, that does impact the content, that does impact the semantics of what we can have, um, is the relationship of the fragments. So, when the excavators initially found the three fragments, they put them in a certain location. And initially, people were like, okay, that makes sense. But then you had other people that would eventually came across, came along and they said, well, I don't know about that. Maybe we should readjust these types of things. And these, again, these are legitimate questions because, look, it's three fragments of an inscription that was probably fairly large. So we just have a small piece of it. It's a very important piece. Um, and, man, I wish we could have some more of it, but we don't. Um, but, but the relationship of the fragments, fragments A, fragments B1, and fragments B2... How do they get put together? And so there is a debate out there, and you can find it in the literature. Certain people put pieces above other pieces. Certain people put one piece over here versus over there. And, but, for, again, the consensus largely sides with the excavators and say, this is probably our best bet. Um, but there is the debate out there. Um, uh, and, so the origin of the inscription, basically who was the benefactor, uh, who who um, who um, said? Okay, let's make an inscription. We want to memorialize this. The person in charge of the inscription, again, it's the benefactor of the inscription. That is a that's a that's a debate that's very fierce, and there is a consensus, but the consensus is not nearly as definitive. The reality is, is we do not have the person mentioned. We have people mentioned on this inscription, but we don't know who sanctioned the, the inscription. We don't have that. The part of that, inscri- the, that part of the inscription is gone. So we're left putting the clues together. All right? We're left with circumstantial evidence. We're left with making educated guesses. And there are, um, uh, there are possibilities uh, that kind of floated to the surface. Uh, a lot of people have said, well, it's Ben-Hadad. Well, the problem with Ben-Hadad is it Ben-Hadad 1, 2, or 3? Uh, Ben-Hadad is an Assyrian king that shows up in the Old Testament, but Ben-Hadad, which literally means son of Hadad, Hadad is the uh, chief Aramean deity, so it's a son of their god, that's kind of a generic name. What does that mean? And how many Ben... So the, the idea is, is Ben-Hadad really a specific name or is it more like a royal title? Is it something else? Uh, because there's at least two different Ben-Hadads and an argument can be made for a third Ben-Hadad in the Old Testament. Um, nevertheless, there are people who say, oh, it's Ben-Hadad 2, um, the second Ben-Hadad? Well, I, I, that, that's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ambiguity there, but that, that is part of the discussion. Where a lot of people land on is this guy named Hazael. Hazael is this Aramean king that comes about around the time of Jehu. Some people speculate, and we'll get into this, um, some people speculate that Jehu may have been in cahoots with Hazael to overrun the Ah the Amri dynasty. Um, It's a possibility. But Hazael comes to power around the time of Jehu and really creates a lot of havoc uh, for the Israelites during that time period. In fact, Hazael is first introduced in... First, 1 First Kings chapter 19, I do believe, where um, Elijah finds himself fleeing from uh, Ahab and Jezebel, finds himself at Mount Sinai, and God basically says, What are you doing here? Go back and do your job. You're going to anoint Jehu and Hazael as the next king of Aram. And so Hazael doesn't come to fruition until later on after his death, but that's where we're first introduced to Hazael. Hazael is this very significant figure. He's talked about in the Old Testament a lot. He's also talked about a lot in uh, Neo-Assyrian uh, records. So this is a guy that's very popular, very widely known, and it's probably the case based on chronology, based on what is said that, that Hazael was the benefactor. He's the guy that sanctioned this uh, this inscription initially. Again, we don't know. Educated guesses and many of the uh, scholars would side on the uh, side with Hazael on that. Okay. The one issue and the one discussion that has created the most controversy is the meaning of that construct chain that I that I that I showed to you just a few moments ago, the Beit yod tav dalit vav dalit. Now, uh, if you know anything about biblical Hebrew, biblical Hebrew was originally written as only consonants. Internal vowels developed later as the, as the language developed. But the vowels um, are little points in your text, mostly. And uh, when you look at these inscriptions, these writings during the Iron Age outside of the, script, the, to the text of your scripture, none of them have vowels. They have, there's some evidence for internal vowels, but for the most part it's just consonants. So the consonants that are in question on this inscription are which translates to house of, And then Dalit Vav Dalet, which are the consonants associated with the proper name of David. So, literally, the construct chain reads, House of David. Now, again, as I mentioned, this find happened right about the time where some very influential scholars were questioning the historical legitimacy of David. Was he even a real figure? Was he a mythical figure? And so you have this inscription that comes along that references David as a historical person and attributes him to a lasting dynasty, which is exactly what the Old Testament does. How are these people who are questioning the, legi- the, the historicity of David as a person going to react? Well, they reacted very poorly. And it really becomes a case study in how far are you going to go to make sure that your ideas don 't die out, to the point where are you going to actually sound absurd, because some of the, some of the uh, some of the ideas was um, the, da, the dalit vav dalit was actually not David, but dode, which is some sort of god, a deity of love, or something along those lines, It really gets kind of comical to the point where you step back and scratch your head and say. Man, you're just coming up with ideas because you do not want to, be, you do not want to admit that you're probably wrong. Um, but that's essentially what it was. There was a long, lengthy conversation. What does this phrase mean? Again, the consensus has landed on it means what it looks like it means. House of David. And so it, the question has shifted, actually. The question has shifted um, this Tel Dan stele is still a very important textual witness in historical discussions about the Old Testament. But the discussion of whether or not David actually existed, whether or not David was actually the founder of a historical dynasty, that's not the conversation that's having that's that, that's happening right now. Instead, the conversation is is happening around issues of histori- historiography, the nature of history writing, and in particular, does the Tel Dan stele contradict? scripture in its claim that Jehu was the one that eradicated the Omride dynasty. Because when you read in 2 Kings chapters 8 and 9 and 10, it's Jehu who silenced the Omride family, Ahab's family, silenced them all, silenced Jezebel, killed all the kids, eradicated the dynasty because that's what he was supposed to do. He was anointed to, the, to that. On this text though, the Aramean benefactor appears to be the one claiming the defeat and the destruction and the killing of the Omri dynasty. So, whose team you want? Team Bible or Team Tel Dan Stila? And so, that's where the conversation has shifted. That It's moved from David, dynasty, to who killed him. So, it's still in play. It's still being discussed, but it's being discussed for different reasons. And we'll get back to that because I think that's important. I, I think that's a legitimate argument to have, but it does force us to wrestle with the dynamics of what is ancient history writing, and how is ancient history writing different than modern history writing? Because we like our history writing, we like our history writing to be scientific, fact based, etc. But when you deal with when you deal with ancient history writing, you 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 deal with some things that quite frankly make me nervous. But it's the reality, and I can't ignore them. Okay, so. Again, all of this silenced the debate of whether or not David was a historical figure. And again, just as I mentioned, just to kind of put it up on a slide here, um, it frames the discussion, the conversation around the Tel Dan Stila now frames the discussion of the Bible's historical value in a new way. As I mentioned, the historical claims of the Stila, are they in contradiction of 2 Kings and who killed the Amrite dynasty? Who silenced them? Was it Jehu? Was it an Aramean king? Or, which is somewhere where I'm probably going to take us, is there something more nuanced going on here? Okay? Is there something else that the Bible's not denying, but the Bible's merely shifting its focus away for theological reasons? Okay? Again, this will force us to consider the nuances of historical writing in an ancient Near Eastern context. So with all of that said, put that on pause, we'll come back to this, because what we need to look at now is something called the Taylor Prism. Alright? The Taylor Prism is basically one copy of Sennacherib's royal historical account, his annals, if you will. Okay? Sennacherib has at least three copies of his sanctioned official history of his reign. And they are found in the Taylor Prism, the Jerusalem Prism, and the Chicago Prism. Now, text critics have looked at all three copies and they've determined that this is essentially the same document. There are, there are subtle differences, minor differences, scribal variations, but it's nothing that fundamentally suggests that we're dealing with different documents. Okay? It seems to be that Sennacherib, at some point, sanctioned his, uh, his royal history and he, was, he said, okay, make at least three copies of it. All right? But these... These accounts, his battle accounts, what he did as a king, um, this isn't just fixated on one year. There are multiple years discussed here. They, they appear on what are called clay prisms. And the prism developed in such a way as to, essentially the prism developed as a shape because it could contain more writing. It's very interesting. As a side discussion, um, the nature of the medium of historical reflection in Mesopotamia. They wrote on clay. Um, clay cylinders, clay tablets, uh, and and those types of things, and, and it's interesting to kind of consider, okay, why did they change from a, from this to this? But the 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 clay prism seems to have become important sometime during Sennacherib's reign because of it because of the fact that it could hold more writing. Okay, this is a picture of the Taylor Prism here, and um, it's def- it's named for a British colonel. All right. Uh, it's named for a British colonel who who came into possession of it. We're not really sure how he came into possession of it. Um, uh, We just know that by a certain time period, by a certain point in time, there was a publication of the content by the British Museum. So it seems to be that the British colonel came into possession of it uh, associated with the excavations at Mesopotamia, and then at some point he pawned it off to the British Museum where they had it and they published the contents of it. Again, Taylor Prism in association with the Chicago Prism and the Jerusalem Prism, okay? And that's eventually how it came to be. Again, a lot of ambiguity on the provenance of the find, how the find came to be, um, and so this does make archaeologists a little nervous because there's just no, for lack of a better term, there's no paper trail, you know, put a paper trail on it. Um, there's none of that, um, but the content of it is really, really important. So again, this this, this, this document, this this. The cylinder prism here recounts the exploits of Sennacherib, who was a very, very famous king. He was the he was the successor to Sargon II. Sargon II, um, no, 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 not Sargon II. Shalmaneser the Fifth. I'm sorry. Sargon Sh- Sargon II gave way to Shalmaneser the Fifth who gave way to Sennacherib. Sargon Sargon II is likely the person who sacked. Samaria in 722, there's, there's some discussion about that, whether it was Sargon II or, some, or Shalmanes of the Fifth, but Sennacherib came to power at the end of the 8th century and just was, yeah, he just, he did a lot, and um, this prism will recount that, and one of it, one of the sections talks about his third military campaign. So one of, the, one of the most tenuous time periods for any empire was at the time of political transition. And as mighty as the Neo-Assyrian Empire was, this was still a very, very real reality. When the Assyrians switched kings, when one king died off and gave way to a new king, it was at that moment of transition where all these little vassal kingdoms who were dis- disenfranchised with the Neo-Assyrian Empire, they said, we are going to rise up in rebellion. And so for the first three years of Sennacherib's reign, he was essentially dealing with the rebellions that came to pass with his ascension to the throne. But in year three, his third, I should say his third military campaign, when his third military campaign, he set his eyes on the region of Syria-Palestine. Because what had happened was a coalition had formed that included Hezekiah that included some Philistines, that included some other polities there, that they started to rise up. They started to dispossess pro, pro-Assyrian kings. They began to take them off, you know, what, what, do they call, what do we call this now, the CIA regime changes, if you will. Um, they, they instituted some regime changes. And so the Assyrians didn't like this. And so eventually when Sennacherib had his, his ducks in a row in Mesopotamia proper, he said, okay, I've got to go down to Syria-Palestine. I got to go down Syria-Palestine, not only because we've been trying to get to Egypt for all these years, but I got to deal with this pain in the neck rebellion and deal with this guy named Hezekiah. And so the the text recounts his movement, his systematic movement across the northern edge of the Fertile Crescent, down the coastal plain, across the Shephelah, and up toward Jerusalem. We can you can track it, and you can tell how he was. You know, as he was going along, he was dealing with the problem areas and, and, and putting Assyrian uh, appointees back in power. But he's making his way towards Hezekiah and towards Jerusalem. And so his third military campaign actually ends with him and his efforts in Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, But again, this third military campaign was a response to the rebellions. Again, you see him work through uh, Phoenicia, down the coast, hits the coastal plain with the Philistines, and then bisects the Shephelah across the valleys in order to get to, Jerusalem, to uh, Jerusalem and Judah. He's deposing kings and installing pro-Syrian kings all along the way. In the process of doing this, he utterly devastates Judah. We know this from the archaeological record. He leaves a wake of destruction in his path. All right? And if he accomplishes one thing, he accomplishes the crippling of Judean of the Judean economy and the Judean social structures and the Judean infrastructure if he can boast one thing he can boast that but what happens is that he sets up shop at Lachish and Lachish as i've mentioned in a previous lecture is one of the major administrative centers in Judah remember at this time Israel is no longer existing there is no Israel that was Israel was sacked and deported in the 722 701, it's just Judah, and, and so Lachish is a very, very important center. And it, it appears that Sennacherib makes his camp right outside of Lachish, and he destroys Lachish. And how do we know this? Well, thanks to Host- Austin Henry Laird, we found his wall decorations on his palace in Nineveh. And those wall decorations are gold overlays that depict the grotesque, Siege warfare that Sennacherib subjected uh, Lachish to. I mean, there are some nasty, nasty pictures. People being impaled, people being filleted, uh, piles of heads, etc. I mean, this is, this is visual rhetoric at its best. And the reason why it was his wall decorations of his palace was because he wanted to intimidate anybody who stepped foot in that palace in every way possible. And those pictures would remind everybody who stood in waiting, this is the individual who you are going to see. If you cross him, this is what you will experience. And it's interesting, folks. It is interesting that he chooses to emphasize and he chooses to celebrate the destruction of the second biggest city of Judah and not its capital. So, This is important, as we'll get to here in a second. But all of this, the Taylor Prism, Sennacherib's annals, his recounting. Remember, the Taylor Prism gives Sennacherib's account of his siege of Jerusalem and Judah. It adds another layer of sophistication and ambiguity and difficulty to the events that surround 701. And in fact, we've got multiple accounts of this event in the Bible itself alright? Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 talks about this and even within 2 Kings, there's a debate of, are we, you know, is is there multiple accounts here? Is this a singular account? Because what do you do with 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 13 through 16 and 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 37 through chapter 19? Because 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 37 through chapter 19 give us the, the give us the images that we grew up on in Sunday school. This is the flannel board uh, account of the, 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 the uh, messenger of the Lord going out in the middle of the night, slaying 185,000 Assyrians like that. So Hezekiah wakes up the next morning, and oh my goodness, they're all dead. And we can thank the Lord for that miraculous salvation. But yet those three verses in chapter 18, verses 13 through 16, seem to suggest that Hezekiah capitulated. It talks about how he stripped the overlays, the gold overlays of the temple. He stripped all the precious metals from the, 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 the royal storehouses and, and the royal banks, etc. And he gave them on to the Assyrians. So what are we talking about here? Did Hezekiah capitulate or did he stand firm? Was Jerusalem saved or was Assyria paid off? So there's a difficulty here, here with, even within the text. And where Sennacherib's account does is it just increases that difficulty because Sennacherib will talk about how he locked Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage, how he, let, how he accepted tribute payment after the fact, all these men, slaves, and, and, and goods, etc. Sennacherib will talk about how he accepted all of that from Hezekiah while not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He'll brag about the forty six cities or forty-eight cities that he destroyed, but he won't brag about the destruction of Jerusalem. So how do we put all of this stuff together? What's going on here? What happened? Well, we know for a fact, uh, we know for a fact that Jerusalem stood, that, that that Jerusalem during this time period wasn't burnt to the ground. We know that Hezekiah continued to be king. So we know that Sennacherib was unsuccessful up to a certain point, but how can all of these things be synthesized? Can they be synthesized? What are we doing here? What is all of this evidence brought to us by archaeology, brought to us by the earliest ev- excavations in Mesopotamia, what is all of, this doing, all of this doing to our understanding of Scripture? Is it clarifying it, or is it producing a situation that can't be explained? How can we trust Scripture? Is it telling us the truth? So you see all the implications here, folks. You see the problems and the difficulties that are created. You can see now how both the Tel Dan Stila... Who killed the Amrites? Was it Jehu, was it Hazael, or was it something else? What happened to Jerusalem in 701? You can see how all of these things, thanks to archaeology, are forcing us to wrestle with the nature of historical writing, ancient historical writing. What's the role of rhetoric in ancient historical writing? What's the nature of literary artistry in historical writing? Because we as modern historians, we don't like rhetoric. We want our history to be straight, fact-laced, boom, give it to me, baby, boom, boom, boom. But that's not what we have, apparently. Because yes, King's is historical writing. Yes, Sennacherib's accounts are historical writings. But they're different. I believe, and just to kind of tip my hand and kind of try to wrap things up here, I believe that a synthesis is possible. But it's possible if we understand the fickleness of language and rhetoric. If we understand that rhetoric was an important factor in the way the ancients wrote their history. If we understand that language itself can be elusive by nature. If we understand those things, then I think we can get to a point where we're beginning to respect the genre of ancient historical writing and things are not necessarily, well, whose team are you on? We don't create this dichotomy of, oh, is it this or is it this? And if it's this, it can't be this. It's got to be one or the other because that's difficult. Because I believe that if we, we, come up, we come on to these issues like that, where it's either this or this and it's black and white and there's nothing gray here, I think if we address the problem with that, I think we're going to get ourselves into I think we're going to get ourselves into an apologetic problem. Because we can side with the Bible. We can say the Bible's true, the Bible's account is the one that matters. But if we say that are we are we are we are we engaging in an intellectual burying our head in the sand. We're just going to pretend like this stuff doesn't exist over here. That's the apologetic problem. We can defend scripture without ignoring Things that have to be addressed. So this is where I want to go, and so for the next couple of moments, um, uh, I, I just kind of want to um, uh, just kind of want to kind of tease some things out for you. And I talk about this a little bit more in my book. And if you want to have some more definitive statements on that, you can. I would encourage you to read the chapters on the Taylor Prism and the Taylor Stila. But what happens if what we're doing here? What happens if this evidence from archaeology is forcing us to live within the gray? What happens if this stuff is good because it helps us to wrestle with the dynamics of the genre? What happens if ancient history writing was as much about emphasizing a particular point while not pretending as if things don't exist? So bear with me here. There's a verb that's used to describe Jehu's efforts in eradicating the Omride line in 2 Kings chapter nine, and it's not a common verb, but it's a it's a verb that appears in a specific derived stem, and it means conspire. He conspired. Now, there's no agent involved. There's no agent explicitly stated. We don't know if Jehu conspired with the prophets. We don't know if Jehu. We don't know who Jehu conspired with. But what the text tells us that Jehu conspired to kill off the Omrides. All right? the, the, most, the most immediate example is that he did conspire with the, the prophets because we have just read in that context, we have just read about a prophet coming from Elisha to anoint Jehu with the expressed purpose of anoint him as the divinely anointed assassin. So that's the most obvious agent in that conspiracy. But what happens if there's something else going on? What happens if Jehu is also conspiring with somebody else? Because the the Aramaic in the Tel Dan Stele, it's difficult to associate an active sense with a passive sense. So that verb in the Tel Dan that talks about this Aramean king killing the uh, the Omride, it can also be read passively, so that the Omrides were killed by the. the, the it, it could make the statement that the Omrides were killed off. That passive idea allows us this wiggle room which is so important in royal rhetoric that wants to talk about the greatness of the king. So is the text in the Old Testament creating this type of wiggle room that allows us to see multiple agencies involved, multiple agencies converging upon a specific, complicated, complex historical event? Look, the assassination of the Omride dynasty would have left a huge impact. The Omrides, for all the things that they did wrong, they stabilized the region and they allowed both Israel and Judah to develop, to progress, and to prosper. And when you take that dynasty out, you are automatically going to take that region and plunge it into chaos. That is a complicated historical event that has wide-reaching ramifications. So what happens if there are multiple agencies, Aramean agencies, working with, uh, working with um, uh, 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 other Israelite factions, all for a unified intention, all for a unified goal, and that is to remove the Omrides from the equation. So it's not whose team you on. You on Team Bible or Team Teldan Stila. But rather, how do these two things converge to give us clarity on what actually may have happened. And I think something similar can be said about the events at 701 BCE. That the Bible is, is, is acknowledging the fact that Hezekiah's defiance had huge implications upon Judean society and Judean infrastructure. Yes, there was an exchange of tribute Because while Jerusalem stood, uh, they were not destroyed. And yes, Sennacherib failed. And the miracle of the event, the miracle of 701 BCE, was more about how Jerusalem stood when it shouldn't have. And so, the Assyrians talk about their efforts in a specific way emphasizing the fact that Sennacherib received all of this tribute, he received all of these slaves, he devastated Judean society, all while trying to say, hey, don't look over here, don't look at the 800-pound elephant in the room, because that 800-pound elephant in the room is this. Hezekiah wasn't deposed from the throne, and Jerusalem wasn't sacked. So really, how successful was Sennacherib? So Sennacherib's got to deal with that. He's got to deal with that. And so he tells the scribes, okay, focus, focus on something else. All right, Sleight of hand, if you will. And the Old Testament is saying, yes, this, this nation, this army, operating at the height of its, of its militaristic efe- efficiency was miraculously repelled. And that's the miracle. And it's very, very interesting. So all that to say, I think we need to move away from this idea that it's got to be one or the other. That in these that in these instances demonstrated by the Tel Dan Stila and demonstrated by the Taylor prism in these instances where it seems that uh oh we got a contradiction here no 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 let's not settle with this idea of a contradiction let's do the hard work all right let's do the hard work and look at what the text actually says what is the text demanding of us and what is and how is that clarified by the evidence of archaeology in this instance the textual evidence thanks to archaeology. Again, it's about how archaeology and the Old Testament and the content of the Old Testament converge to potentially clarify very complicated events and situations. So in a final lecture, we'll get more about these broad and narrow convergences, some things to think about. I mean, I certainly don't offer that reconstruction with any sort of claim of, of of definitive expertise, but it is something that I think it's a discussion that's hard and it's a discussion that has to be had. But in our our, our last lecture, we're going to a number of different. Um, we're going to go rapid fire and we're going to get a number of different um, finds and we're going to talk about the nature of their convergences. This is Dr. David B. Schreiner in his teaching on pondering the spade. This is session number three. Tell Dan Steely and the Taylor Prism narrow convergences.